All right, everybody, welcome back. This is Didactic Mind, episode 76, War Games. Uh, very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers from the site, uh, didacticmind.com. Very warm welcome to all of my longtime Podbean subscribers. If you are not already subscribed, please make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe using the links in the description box. Make sure you sign up to the mailing list for the site. That way you'll never ever miss a new uh, post or upload <coughs> for the podcast. You will never ever miss a new notification. Uh, you will never miss any new developments that come up. And uh, you will, of course, always have access to uh, the best stuff from uh, the site itself. There's eight years and counting of archives uh, of material on the site, uh, which is pretty astonishing, actually, if you think about it. Uh, given that most people do not last more than eight months uh, when doing this sort of thing, and most, uh, the vast majority of them last even less than that, you know, to do this pretty much every single day for eight years and a bit is uh, indeed something of an achievement. And uh, I am quite proud of it, to be honest. Um, there's a hell of a lot of material, both through the written word and the podcast, uh, that you can consume. But uh, before we get to the meat of this week's podcast, uh, remember that Big Tech absolutely hates you. Remember that Big Tech wants to see you destroyed. We have seen the reality of Big Tech collusion of late. And I'm going to be talking about themes that relate to why Big Tech and is doing this and how it can get away with this. But remember that Big Tech and Big Media absolutely want to see people like you and me uh, out of work, out of a job, chased out of our homes, uh, cut off from all financial support, all ties of any kind. If you want to avoid that fate, or at least if you want to protect yourselves, make sure that you build your own platforms. Make sure that you set up your own uh, brands online. Make sure that you are anti-fragile in some way, shape, or form. The simplest and best way to do that is indeed to create your own site. You can do that by, number one, getting a domain name. Make sure you register it using Namecheap, uh, which will get you the best value deals for an ICANN-compliant uh, domain name, whether it's .com, .org, .biz, .whatever, .xyz, you can even call it that. Uh, domain name for yourself, then make sure that you get a hosting service through A2 Hosting, which offers you by far the most cost-effective, uh, straightforward, shared WordPress hosting out there. Then make sure you get yourself a website builder kit, which will help you create beautiful-looking websites, the same, that, uh, same kit that I use on all of my sites, and I have several of them up and running. Uh, I use Elegant Themes' Divi plugin, which is superb. It takes some little bit of learning, but it's not difficult. And it will give you everything you need to create a great-looking site that is yours to own. It's your piece of real estate. Google can't take it from you. Facebook can't stop you from using it. Apple can't kick you off of it. Twitter can't ban you from it. It's yours to own. And last and most importantly, make sure you use a VPN when surfing the web. It's not a guarantor of anonymity, but it's pretty decent. It's a good proxy for masking your IP address. I mean, I'll give you an example right now. 
Okay, what's my IP address as of this exact moment? Let me just make uh, one quick adjustment. Uh, <clears throat> if I wanted to trace my own IP uh, address, I can do that by going to, let's say, whatsmyip.com uh, slash IP trace. Well, what happens if I were to do that? What happens if I were to trace my IP as it is right now? Well, this is my exact IP address as of the time of writing. 185.220.70.206. 185.220.70.206. That's my IP address. You can run uh, a trace on that. You can go to whatsmyip.com slash IP dash trace and you can run a trace on that exact address. And where are you going to find me? According to that website, I am currently in Germany, in Hesse, um, near Frankfurt am Main, uh, whatever that means. I guess the main city of Frankfurt, perhaps. Whatever that means. I've never, well, I've, I've been to Frankfurt Airport many times, but I've never been to Frankfurt, Frankfurt um, itself. And indeed, I don't think I've ever been inside of Germany. Uh, that is not where I am. I'm not even close to that place, and I'm not going to tell you where I am, but uh, it's sure as hell not in Germany. I have no interest in being in Germany, but if I wanted to be, I could be. Uh, anybody who wanted to look me up would see that I am in Germany right now, but I'm not. That is the power of a VPN, and that power can be yours. If you are posting controversial ideas or thoughts online, you need to do so through a VPN to mask your IP address. It's an absolute requirement. It used to be that you could get away with uh, surfing the web without a VPN, and that was fine. You know, the, the, as recently as three years ago, the notion of surfing the web using a VPN to mask your presence was a bit like the idea of having a shower while wearing a raincoat. What's the point? Just slowing yourself down, you're not really adding to your experience. You're not doing anything useful. Today, surfing the web without a VPN, an active one, a good one, is a bit like taking a shower while wearing a plugged-in toaster. It's that stupid. Don't be dumb about your internet security. Make sure that you use a VPN when surfing. Best VPN out there in terms of value for money is Surfshark. Uh, check out the affiliate links below. You'll get a great deal for two years. You get for a cup of coffee every month, just one cup of coffee every month, you will get the best value VPN out there. And that means $2.50 that you won't be spending sending to Starbucks so that they can sponsor Black Looming Menace riots in your, oh, excuse me, mostly peaceful protests in a city near you. To me, that seems like a pretty solid trade-off. Uh, you get internet security, Starbucks gets less revenue, Everybody wins. Well, maybe not Starbucks, but who cares about them? Tonight, however, I want to talk about um, one of the uh, ideas behind uh, strategic choice. And bear with me, because this might sound a bit abstract, but it's not. The point behind tonight's discussion is all about uh, building on some of the themes I've been talking about in previous podcasts. You remember... In last week's podcast, I talked about um, why evil keeps winning uh, and how the evil that men do really does live on well after their deaths and how 
fighting evil is challenging and difficult. Well, there's a really cute cat. It's, it's, uh, I'm not a cat person, by the way. Um, I don't like cats in general. Um, there's an old joke about how people who don't like cats have never had them uh, cooked just right. Um, I just, I'm not overly fond of cats, but uh, I do admit that uh, when you've got a really floofy, fluffy, cute cat, and uh, it's a well-behaved cat, then it's a very kind and happy companion. I, I do like such cats, and I've been uh, fortunate enough to come across a few of them. But anyway, the reason why I want to talk about, uh, I want to extend that discussion is because I want to bring in some useful tools and ideas developed in the field of mathematics to the discussion about why evil acts the way it does. And it's very germane to the current discussion because we have just learned, I think this week, that so much of uh, the disinformation that people like me on the hard right said was disinformation during the 2020 presidential campaign turns out to be outright lies. It wasn't just um, a mistake, it was outright lies. Um, the New York Times published during the campaign a report saying that uh, Russian, uh, the Russian government had put out bounties on the heads of American troops in Afghanistan uh, during the 2020 campaign. Now, why did they do that? Well, here's the reason. Because Donald Trump said back in 2015 and 2016 and finally started to deliver on in 2020 that he wanted to get all troops out of Afghanistan by the end of his term, by the end of his first term. And he had started to do precisely that. He had fought against his own generals, against Congress, against the entire military industrial complex, against the entire political establishment to pull American troops out of a war that they cannot, could not, and cannot win. America has been fighting in the sands, or the rock pile, actually, of Afghanistan for 20 years, very nearly. It has failed utterly to transform Afghanistan into some sort of beacon of democratic values, or whatever nonsense you want to believe uh, is possible. I've never understood how neo-clowns think that uh, <clears throat> an Islamic country stuck in the backwardness and uh, foolishness of the 7th and 8th centuries, the barbarism of that time, can possibly believe that such a society will transform itself in the space of a single generation into a beacon of democracy. Not going to happen. Do you realize how long it took to civilize Germanic tribes settled along uh, the Roman frontier? It wasn't a thousand years. Uh, that's a bit of an exaggeration. And there aren't many things where I disagree with our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Vox Dei, the most merciless and terrible. But in this respect, I do disagree with him. Uh, the evidence that we have in front of us shows that by the time the Roman Empire actually quote-unquote fell in 476 AD, the so-called Visigoth barbarians uh, were in fact every bit as advanced, more or less, as the Romans had been themselves. 
And far from being a catastrophic collapse, the 5th century sort of just blended into the 6th. It wasn't really a collapse of any kind. There wasn't a collapse exactly. It was just a mostly Gothic Roman emperor stepped down so an actually Gothic Roman ruler could take, well, not an actually Gothic ruler could take over and that was the end of the official Roman Empire, yes, but it actually stopped being Roman for about a century up until that point. So what we saw after that was a continuation of Roman traditions expressed under Visigoth rule, under Christian Visigoths. Uh, the question then became, you know, why did, uh, what happened to those, those barbarian tribes? How did they civilize? Well, it took them, it took them the better part of 200 years to do it. It took a very, very long time for pagan barbarians to become civilized quasi-Romans. It didn't happen in the space of a single generation. It happened over multiple generations. It happened over about 10 generations. That's about the minimum amount of time you need to turn a barbarian people into a civilized one. It's not going to happen quickly. 20 years is not enough. And you can't do it using the methods that the Americans used. This hearts and minds approach, no, you can't do it. You can't, you can't have a halfway solution where you preserve the old culture while trying to implement new norms. It's not going to work. You have to literally tear down the existing culture, destroy it completely. And Americans aren't willing to do that. And thank God for that. Because the the, the, the bloodshed required to do something like that is beyond insane. And there's no good reason why it should be done. So at any rate, the New York Times spread this story. And it was based on <clears throat> single source intelligence, as it turns out. And the entire intelligence community rallied around the story and said, yes, it's absolutely true, it's correct, that this is what happened. Well, no, it didn't. It was a lie. It was all a lie. And the intelligence community now is saying, oh, yeah, actually, we only have low to moderate confidence that it's true. Uh, that's, once you translate that from, you know, uh, pentaloon bullshit into actual English, what that means is, yeah, that we just made stuff up. It was just, we made it up. Um, and the New York Times has finally admitted that, in fact, this was a single source story without much backing or credibility behind it. It's okay to say that now, of course, because Bad Orange Man is no longer president. But the question is, why? Why would you lie so blatantly? If you are committed to standards of honor, nobility, decency, if you have actual values, if you have uh, a soul, this doesn't make sense. It does not seem right that people should be able to get away with this. It doesn't even seem right that it should work. Why does it work? Why does this approach of completely lunatic ideology coupled with extreme lies work? How does this make sense? The answer lies in, or what, a very good answer, a very good potential answer lies in game theory. For those of you who are not familiar with game theory, which is pretty much everybody, um, not all of you, but pretty much everybody, game theory is a very fascinating field that 
lies at the intersection of a number of different things, psychology, uh, economics, uh, behavioral science, and particularly mathematics. The core findings of game theory are actually mathematical ideas and arguments. They come from uh, fields of probabilistic uh, intuition and probabilistic science, where you're trying to understand how people will choose specific outcomes. The classic illustration of game theory is, of course, the prisoner's dilemma. The prisoner's dilemma is one that you can model, or it serves as the model uh, of human behavior in a number of, in many, many different situations. Consider an example where you have two thieves. They're caught in a robbery, and they're taken to separate interrogation rooms. And the police come in, and they sit with each of the thieves at the same time. And they say to the two thieves, basically they say to the two thieves, uh, we're going to give you a set of choices. So, the thieves have the opportunity or the option of honoring their uh, respective uh, partners. And, and like, uh, let's say, let's call the thieves Alex and Bob. Okay. And they have two possible strategies. One, they could honor, uh, there could be honor between, um, honor among thieves, and uh, they could refuse to uh, identify each other as accomplices. Uh, or one of them could betray the other and uh, say, yeah, he, it was his idea. The, the police want to know who the mastermind of the crime was. So uh, let's say Alex says, oh, Bob was the guy who came up with the idea. And Bob says, oh, no, actually it was Alex who came up with it. Well, so the police come into the rooms, respectively, and say, okay, Alex in one room and Bob in the other room. All right, you're in a world of trouble. You got caught red-handed stealing from the bank. However, your partner is sitting in the other room, and we're going to give you an opportunity here. See, there's no honor among thieves, not really. Listen, Bob, listen, Alex, there's no real honor among thieves. If you give up your accomplice, if you say that it was him, it was his idea all along, we'll just let you off as an accessory. Uh, you'll get a reduced sentence. You'll only have to serve one year of jail time. If you both uh, refuse to admit who is the true mastermind, you'll both get three years in the clink. You'll both have to suffer. But if you give up your partner, you'll only have to do a year in jail, and he'll have to do five years in jail. What's it going to be, Alex? What's it going to be, Bob? Who are you going to trust? You're going to trust your scum, scumbag partner there? You think he's not going to give you up? Now, the thing is, both thieves know and understand that each has the same set of incentives. Each has the same set of strategies. They both know that they have the opportunity to give up or keep, keep give the other up or keep quiet. This is the essence of game theory, or it's one of the simplest game theory uh, models there is. It's called a normal game of uh, perfect, complete information, to use the technical terminology. And this allows you to understand some very, very, very powerful human insights. Because what is the optimal strategy, assuming that both thieves are rational? If you lay out the game in a matrix, as I have been trained to do, because again, I mean, I have background in mathematics, I know this stuff. 
the optimal outcome is for both thieves to betray each other. And let's say if they do both betray each other, they both get two years in jail. Why? Why is it better for both of them to betray the other? If you put it in a matrix form, it'll become very obvious very quickly. Basically, if you look at Alex's strategy uh, against Bob's strategy of you know, uh, Alex's available strategies, you know, available choices against Bob's strategy of honoring, uh, of, of acting honorably, well, Alex gets three years if he uh, also honors the, uh, the agreement or if he also uh, does not give up his partner, but he only gets one year if he betrays. So obviously, against Bob's strategy of honoring, uh, of honor among thieves, it's in Alex's best interest to betray him. And similarly on the other side, if uh, Alex looks at Bob and says, Bob is going to betray me, what's my best strategy in response? Well, if Alex acts honorably, he gets five years in prison. But if he betrays Bob, he only gets two years in prison. So again, he should betray Bob. Flip it around. Go to Bob's strategy. Bob gets um, three years if he acts honorably, but only one year if he betrays Alex in the event that Alex acts honorably. Bob gets five years if he acts honorably when Alex betrays him, but he only gets two years if he betrays Bob, uh, betrays Alex when Alex betrays Bob. This it's, it's hard to explain, but really easy to see when you see it in matrix form, in, in a normal form game. This is the essence of game theory. It gives you an understanding of how people respond to incentives and how people act under conditions. It reduces human behavior down to strategies and payoffs. Strategies and payoffs. That's it. Strategies and payoffs. And the assumption in game theory is that we always act rationally. We always act in a way that is in our best interests. Now, is that necessarily true? Well, sometimes it is not. When we look at the modern left, what do we see? We see seemingly completely irrational crazies. We see people who are just bug shit nuts doing things that are unbelievably stupid. But that's because we're thinking without considering game theory. We're not looking at it in game theoretic terms. Game theory allows you to come to some very surprisingly counterintuitive conclusions that actually make perfect sense once you start looking at payoffs and strategies. Everything comes down to payoffs and strategies. Consider the example of, um, let's say, a pricing strategy. This is a, another classic example in economics. Uh, let's say you have a retailer that has um, a pricing strategy that says, we will never be beaten on price, ever. What does that mean in reality? A lot of people who aren't familiar with game theory but understand basic economics would say, oh, well, it's a great, it's a great way to capture market share. It's a great marketing tagline. People will come in and say, okay, well, you won't be beaten on price. Therefore, uh, I can trust that you have the lowest prices in the market. And I'm not going to be bothered to go figure that out for myself. I'm not going to try to research it for myself. 
uh, I'm just going to trust that you have the lowest price. I will buy a big refrigerator from you and by the time the refrigerator gets to me and I find that there's another refrigerator available somewhere else for $100 cheaper, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to cancel my order. I'm not going to waste all that time. I just, I want my freaking refrigerator. Okay. That's one way of doing it. But it's a very ignorant way of doing it. It's a very naive way of looking at the problem. Consider this instead. The department store chain that uses the we shall never be beaten on price approach is actually doing it to punish its rivals. Consider this. You find uh, a rival company selling the same thing you are for 10% less. What happens? You cut your price down to 10% below the market price because your competitor has come into the market and said, this is the lowest priced um, entrant into the market. This is like the, the lowest level that the market can bear while still making some profit. Okay, I'm going to price a little bit lower than that and try to capture some market share and make some profit that way. I mean, there's still some profit to be had, so why don't I just undercut my rival on price? The problem is that your rival, the, the big you know, market company that's um, adopted this we will not be beaten ever on price strategy, has deep pockets and it has lots of cash that it can burn. So it observes you coming into the market trying to undercut it on price. Guess what it does? It cuts the price below what you can afford, what you have you can economically afford as a company. It will drive you out of business. It's a punishment strategy. And that's the point. When you start looking at it in game theory terms and you lay out the, the, the payoffs and the strategies in a matrix form or in a, an extensive, what's called an extensive form game, uh, which is where you have a tree. And uh, this, this works for multi-stage games where you have uh, one player that moves first and another player that moves second. You have to, you can't model it in a matrix. You have to model it in, in, a, in a tree form. When you start looking at it like that, you're like, oh, okay. Now it makes sense. It's a ruthless, ruthless game. And that's the point. You won't see this using standard economics. You'll only see it using game theory. And now you begin to understand somewhat how the left thinks. We see a bunch, as I said, of bug shit insane idiots doing bug shit insane stupid things. This is a mistake. The left is crazy, yes, but it's crazy and evil in a very animalistic sense of cunning. There is a rationality behind it that you have to see a little bit more deeply to understand. You have to discern it more carefully in order to understand it. You see, the evil that we're talking about, the satanic evil of the left, is not irrational. There's a cunning to it. There's a cleverness to it. It's rational in its own way. It understands the nature of the game. And it is a game. It is a great game. The Bible makes that very clear. It is a great, it, well, it used to be eternal game. It's not eternal anymore. 
back before the big cheese came along, back before his hugeness himself uh, came to us in human form and died for us and came back to life, resurrected, um, in order to cleanse us of sin, Satan himself knew that he had a lot of time to play with. He understood that he could get humans involved in all kinds of depravity, up to and including killing their own children, murdering their own young. And that was fine, because he had time to work with. There would be lots more human souls to come along. It wasn't a big deal to destroy or damage or kill off a few hundred thousand here and there, a few million. You know, there would be billions more to come throughout the rest of time. Then along came Jesus Christ. When God said, I see where this is going, and I'm going to put a stop to it. And now, all of a sudden, Satan's time is circumscribed. He no longer has eternity to work with. He knows he will be punished. He will be destroyed at some point. He doesn't know when. But he knows it's going to happen. Nobody knows when. Only God himself knows when. Jesus said, I myself do not know when. I Even I do not know the hour or the day. Only God above knows the hour and the day. Gospel of John somewhere. John something or the other. I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a chapter and verse type of the Bible, but that's where it is. What does that mean for Satan? Well, it means he has only a small amount of time to work with, comparatively speaking. And it means that he must now maximize damage while he can. That's his incentive set. That's his set of payoffs. Every soul that he captures, he gets an incentive for it. He has a strategy. He has an, actually has an, a huge number of strategies for capturing souls and for taking them over and for destroying them and for making them lose hope. That's why you now see, instead of strategies designed to destroy people or kill them quickly, you now see strategies designed to corrupt human souls throughout their entire lives, to make them weak and feeble, and to make them despair, to make them easy to manipulate and corrupt. This is the reality, and it, you can explain so much of this through game theory. Look at the incentives of the left. Don't look at them as a bunch of loonies running around doing nonsense. It's not the case. Start looking at them instead as having very clear strategies. Now, a two-player game, by definition, has to have another player who acts rationally. Here's the weakness of game theory. The assumption, the core assumption of game theory is that the other player, that all players are rational. They will always maximize their self-interest. However, if one of the players acts in a suboptimal way, the entire game theory logic becomes very screwy. It's not, I mean, it's not that you can't solve games and game theory through that. You can model the behavior, but it becomes much, much harder to predict the outcomes of, of games in game theory when um, the other player acts in a, in a suboptimal fashion. Remember G.K. Chesterton's observation. Uh, the whole world has divided itself into progressives and conservatives. The business of the progressives is to carry on making mistakes. The business of the conservatives is to stop the mistakes from being corrected. 
Brilliant observation. It's over a hundred years old. Absolutely true. Why is it true? We keep saying on the hard right that it's because conservatives are spineless wimps. And it's true, they are. By and large. I mean, not, not all of them, but most of them. Conservatives can't even preserve the damn ladies' bathroom. Never mind a nation. They don't have a positive philosophy. They don't act in ways that would uh, actually hold the line against evil. They, they can't do it. They have nothing to defend. That's why everywhere that it, you have a supposedly conservative government, you actually see the left taking over the institutions one after another after another. It's th th You can't stop them, it seems. Conservatism doesn't stop a single damn thing. But why? Is there more to it than just sheer lack of balls and spine? Or is there a game-theoretic explanation for it as to why they're acting suboptimally? Well, yeah, maybe there is. If you look at the incentives and the payoff set, what, uh, what happens to the left if it adopts certain strategies? Well, certain strategies for the left only become feasible if the other player refuses to act rationally, refuses to maximize its payoffs. Why would another player refuse to maximize its payoffs? Because it's afraid of something, because it worries about some, uh, some issue in the background that, that stops it from being a rational player. Uh, going back to the prisoner's dilemma, for instance, let's say Alex is the left and Bob is conservatives, you know, uh, the, the, the so-called conservative right. Well, what do you suppose happens? Bob's strategy, Bob's natural personal inclination is to be honorable at all times. Alex doesn't have that. Alex is going to act rationally. He's going to act based on whatever Bob does on his understanding of what Bob's strategies are going to be. But now he knows Bob will always act honorably. He always will refuse to betray his friend because it's a matter of principle for Bob. Alex now knows that his single best strategy is always to betray Bob. Bob's best strategy at all times in this game is to betray Alex. This is the definition of a dominant strategy. The in, there is no scenario in this game, and it's a very simple game, in which Bob should honor uh, his, his, his compact with uh, his co-criminal. There is no strategy. Oh, there, there is no scenario in which that strategy makes sense. Again, it's a very simple two-strategy game. But... What if Bob decides to act suboptimally, which is exactly what he does, because he's stupid, because he's, uh, he's naive, because he's foolish? What happens then? Well, of course, Alex betrays him every single time. You can model uh, the prisoner's dilemma in other ways as well. You can model it as a repeated game with uh, what you might call trigger strategies, grim trigger strategies, in fact where um, you can actually enforce collusion between uh, different parties. Um, and you can do this with a lot of different games. I mean, I'm just brushing over the surface of game theory. I haven't even gotten into Nash Equilibriums, or Equilibria, excuse me, Nash Equilibria, and the, the Nash's uh, 
the Nash Equilibrium Theorem. I haven't even gotten into that. Um, if you're interested in learning about this, by the way, read read the book. Don't I mean the movie is whatever the movie is the movie, but a beautiful mind. Read the book, a beautiful mind. Uh, I haven't read it. Um, I have I have been told by people who have read it, like serious mathematicians and economists. I mean, really seriously smart people. Um, this is a phenomenal book. It is absolutely brilliant and very readable and very easy to understand, even for a non-mathematician, so that you can understand exactly why game theory was so revolutionary, was and is. Um, You know, from a a mathematician's point of view, actually, Nash's theorem is not all that impressive. I'm I'm not trying to downplay it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Nash, John Nash was a brilliant mathematician, no question. But the problem was that he was, uh, I think, classmates with uh, John von Neumann. And John von Neumann, if again, if you know the history of mathematics at least a little bit, was an astonishingly brilliant mathematician. And this this is a guy who is like one of the, you know, leading lights of early computer science. We wouldn't have modern computer science if it weren't for people like Alan Turing, bit of a flagrant homosexual, but that's his problem, and uh, John von Neumann. Von Neumann looked at Nash's theorem and said, eh, what's the big deal about that? It's just a fixed point theorem. Everything was easy for von Neumann. But the profound insight provided by Nash's idea uh, was so powerful and so useful that you could apply it in realms far beyond mathematics. And that is why he, he won the Nobel well, actually, not the Nobel Prize in economics. It's a fake Nobel. It's not a real Nobel Prize. It's the Bank of Sweden Memorial Prize in Bank of Sweden Nobel Memorial Prize in economics. So it's not actually a real Nobel Prize. Um, but he won that prize specifically because of the insights that uh, his ideas provided into the field of economics. So here's a good application of repeated gains, or uh, which lead to trigger strategies. Go back to that example of we shall never be beaten on price. Uh, what happens when an upstart comes along, tries to enter the market, and beats uh, and tries to beat a an existing competitor on price? Well, the existing competitor has lo- loads and loads of cash in his pockets. And he immediately undercuts the rival's price by another 10%. So, you know, he's already, you're selling at a 20% discount. Great for the customer, sure, but it's killing everybody in the market. The entire market is suffering because of this one guy who decided to come in and try to undercut prices. And the main company, you know, the, the, the established entrenched company in the market that wants to protect its dominant market position is trying to drive everybody else out. So it does that by using a trigger strategy. What it says is, as long as you'll keep prices at a fair and competitive level, we'll keep prices at a fair and competitive level. Nobody loses, nobody really wins, nobody, but nobody really loses. We'll let prices move around in, let's say, a small band. But the moment you try to leave that band, we will kill you. We will use our deep cash reserves to destroy you. What happens then? Somebody tries to come along and gets killed in the market by the dominant competitor. What is that? It's a trigger strategy. 
suppose the rest of the market says, okay, okay, we give up, we cry uncle, we'll raise our prices back up to, you know, what the, the dominant player wants. The dominant player then switches its price back to the original, you know, market price. Again, this is a trigger strategy. So it's an enforcement concept. It's designed to stop people from stepping out of line. Game theoretic insight and a very brilliant one. Now let's go to the concept of a grim trigger strategy. What happens in a grim trigger strategy? A grim trigger strategy is where uh, the dominant player basically says, if you ever step out of line, we will always forever keep the price well below what you can afford. We will kill you and we will kill you so badly that no one else will ever want to come in and mess with us again. It's Essentially, uh, massive assured destruction or mutually assured destruction. It, uh, this is, I mean, MAD is a game theoretic concept. It's, a, it's an application of game theory. MAD is a direct application of game theory. What are the lessons that we on the right can learn from this? Well, they're pretty strong. I mean, I've already gone over a few of them. Number one, you have to learn and understand that as irrational and crazy as the left seems, there is intelligence behind it. There is rationality behind it. You just don't see it necessarily, but it's there. There is an animalistic, careful cunning behind it. And there's more than an animalistic cunning behind much of it, actually. You have to learn to recognize it. You have to learn to start thinking of the world in terms of payoffs, and incentives. You have to start looking at strategies and payoffs. And the moment you start looking at it like that, ideas like unlimited immigration make perfect sense. What happens if you adopt a strategy of unlimited immigration? Well, you destroy your country. You don't have a country to rule. That's not what matters. To the left, that's not important. To the left, what matters is securing permanent political power. So they are willing to risk destruction of the country because they look at it rationally. They say, okay, well, we're going to have political power for the 20 years or so that it takes for the country to break apart completely. And during that time, we'll be able to siphon off all of the wealth and the lifeblood of that country and enrich ourselves. So why wouldn't we do that? Especially given that the right has a strategy that it can use to destroy us, but it won't do it. We know they won't do it. We know they won't because they've never behaved in a way that would indicate they would do it. What do you think the left is going to do? Of course they will adopt the strategy that gives them the most power. Therefore, they will open the floodgates, let in as many uh, invaders as can possibly be accommodated, and then some. They will give them all free citizenship, free healthcare, free education, free, free everything at the expense of the native population. They will replace the existing native population with a new class of voters that votes only for the left and only for the progressive hard left's agenda. And they will use that to consolidate political power. What do you think the American left has been doing for 30 years. This is the strategy. This is exactly what they should do. 
Why have they done it? Because in the 1980s, President Reagan, you know, St. Reagan Magnus of the Right, otherwise one of the greatest presidents of all time, signed uh, a uh, basically an amnesty bill that granted a couple of million uh, illegals in the United States a pathway to citizenship and allowed their children to stay and you know refused to do anything about birthright citizenship and so on and so forth. I mean, there's a lot that Ronald Reagan did wrong when it came to domestic policy, at least with respect to securing the posterity of America for Americans, specifically for white Americans. Okay, let's be honest about this. America is a nation founded by white people for white people. You may not like it. You may call me a racist. You may call me all sorts of horrible names, but that's the truth. America is what it is because of white people. That's just the reality of it. Now, what should Reagan have done instead? He should have done what his predecessor, uh, um, Dwight D. Eisenhower did with Operation Wetback. He should have gone around and deported as many illegals as was necessary to make the point that America is for people who come in legally, follow due process, follow the law, and we will not give free handouts to anybody who is an American. That was the right thing to do, but Reagan didn't do it. That was the optimal strategy, particularly from a long-term perspective, but Reagan didn't do it. Why? Because he believed that the short-term calculus was more important than the long-term strategy. It's not as if a lot of the stuff that we're talking about you know, today wasn't foreseen 40 years ago in Reagan's time. A lot of the stuff we're talking about today, about white replacement theory and uh, the loss of national identity and the destruction of the nation, was stuff that they were talking about back in Pat Buchanan's time. This is not new. This, is, this has been talked about for decades. Go back all the way to Enoch Powell's uh, Rivers of Blood speech, uh, which was nowhere near as dramatic as the title sounds. All that Enoch Powell was saying was that by importing lots and lots of foreigners into Britain, we're making our society less trusting, less stable, less, less happy, less free. This is not news. I mean, we've known about this for decades. Um, Robert Putnam's study, um, I've, I've actually got it, I've been meaning to read it for some time, I just haven't read it yet. But uh, it's, a, it's a study called E Pluribus Unum, Diversity and Community in the 21st Century, uh, delivered in 2006 at the 2006 jo Johann Skite Prize Lecture. Uh, this was um, somewhere. But it's absolutely fascinating study. It's about 30 pages long. I mean, the, the, the meat of the study is 30 pages long. What does it say? It says exactly what people like me have been saying for years. I mean, the, the, I, I actually base a lot of my arguments on this study because this is the seminal study in the field. More diversity equals lower societal trust, lower social cohesion, lower civic responsibility, civic duty, higher crime, higher uh, violence uh, in neighborhoods, uh, less happy, less stable communities. Does any of this sound familiar? I mean, is this any of, is, it, is anybody surprised by this? This is a direct result of refusing to take the optimal strategy, the optimal long-term strategy. And that's the problem. The right does not think long-term the way that the left does. The left actually has a very long-term view on things, which is informed. Once you start looking at it in game theoretic terms, you'll understand just how cunning the left really is, how intelligent, how long-term they think. They don't think in terms of the next election cycle. They think in terms of the next 10 election cycles. 
And the thing is, the right has all of the tools necessary in game theoretic terms to win. It just refuses to use them. Donald Trump was absolutely right. And you know, let's be clear here. There's a reason why I call him. Here we go. His most illustrious, noble, august, benevolent, and legendary celestial majesty, the God Emperor of Mankind, Donaldus Triumphus Magnus Astra, the first of his name, the Lion of Midnight, the Chaddest of Chads, may the Lord bless him and preserve him. There's a reason why I call him all of that. It's because he was the first Republican who came along in about 30 years, since Reagan's time, who said, you know what, we have the tools to win, and we're going to win. I am going to enforce the law. I am going to do put Americans first. I am going to start winning. I am going to stop kowtowing to the left for fear of being called an ist and a, and a, and a phobe and a whatever. You know, he was just like, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to do what is right for the country. And he did. And he was destroyed for it. But that's because what he did the, the the scale and size of the problem was so great that he couldn't deal with it uh, just as one man. I mean, he was fighting against everything. He was fighting against the military. He was fighting against Congress. He was fighting against the judiciary. He was fighting against the states. He was fighting against the Kung Flu eventually. He was fighting against the unelected bureaucracy, the, the massive deep state swamp. He was fighting against all of it. He was fighting against his own family even. I mean, Ivanka and Jared Trump, you know, Javanka, good Lord, uh, what a disaster those two were. Uh, he tried hard to win because he understood what the right should always have understood, that we have the weapons to win. We have the ability to fight. We have the capacity to push back. If only we would stick to our optimal strategies. Our optimal strategies are not necessarily to act honorably. I mean, this is our our natural inclination as people of the right, people with K-selected ways of thinking. And if you want a somewhat rambling primer on 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 our K-selection theory, go back to my podcast from a couple of weeks ago uh, about this. This is our natural inclination to think uh, about the betterment of our species and ourselves. Okay. But that doesn't mean we can't fight back. When it comes to fighting back against the hive mind of the left, and again, remember, you can't think of the left as being completely insane, completely devoid of all rationality. Understand, please understand, the left has a cunning to it, an animalistic, careful cunning. Once you understand that, and you understand that it is a hive intelligence, again, like what I said in, in last week's podcast, um, and in the week before, I think, when I talked about uh, Stranger Things and the way in which um, the, the upside down uh, resembles the way that evil acts in our world in a very hive-minded sort of way. Once you understand this, you understand that this hive mind has its weaknesses. It's not capable of dealing with attacks from multiple directions. If you give it a single fixed point, uh, just one target to attack, it will, that's it. You know, The hive mind will destroy that target instantly. It's obliterated. That's what makes the left so formidable and so dangerous. If you present, if you use a strategy of just trying to fight on one battleground at a time, and if your strategy essentially amounts to noble, noble defeat every single time, 
Of course the left is always going to win. Of course. They're never going to stop coming for you. But here's the weakness of a hive mind. A hive mind cannot deal with too many variables all at once. If you throw lots and lots of small attacks against it, the hive mind cannot handle that. Sounds counterintuitive, I know, but it's actually true. If you uh, look at the way that, um, uh, what's it called, the Japanese murder hornets, or Asian murder hornets as they're called, attack a nest of bees, how does that work? You don't have one attacker going up against a whole nest of bees. When one attacker tries to attack a swarm of Japanese bees, um, the Japanese bees will actually try to lure the attacker in and then will smother it and will cook it alive in a, uh, a living cocoon of vibrating bees. Um, the internal temperature in that cocoon will reach like 50 degrees Celsius. The bee will, the, the, the hornet will just die from uh, heat exposure and it will literally it'll be cooked alive. The bees themselves who do this will be killed. It's, uh, they, they sacrifice themselves for the hive. But that's one hornet at a time. Uh, if, however, you have lots of, you have like 10 or 12 hornets attacking from different directions, the, the hive mind of the bees doesn't quite know how to respond. It can't react fast enough. This is especially true of European bees, which have not evolved defenses against Japanese murder hornets. Um, those bees will be massacred. I mean, you can have, uh, what, uh, 12 murder hornets coming in and just wiping out a colony of about 30,000 bees in the space of a few hours. There's video of this on YouTube. You can go look it up. It's both uh, fascinating and terrifying at the same time. A lot of fun to watch, though. Um, the reason it works is because the hornets present too many targets, too many variables for the, the hive intelligence to deal with. That is the optimal strategy for the right, especially now. It works. It actually works in practice. If you look at what uh, our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Vox Day has done against Indiegogo and Patreon. Why did Indiegogo agree to settle? Because they understood eventually, I mean, it took them a while, but they understood eventually that if they tried to fight every single arbitration case launched against them by several, well, a couple of hundred backers, they were going to run out of capital. They would be wiped out because the amount of capital required in terms of lawyers' fees, arbitration costs, and uh, court settlement fees for those uh, however many backers it was, uh, would destroy them. They would, they, they weren't big enough, they weren't a big enough company to deal with it. Again, game theory predicts this outcome. You can see it happen. If you model it as a, as a, as a strategic game, you can see this. You can actually look at it in terms of, uh, a decision tree and you can, um, you can, if you're sophisticated enough as a mathematician, you can go through and look at, uh, incentives and, 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 um, and movement outcomes and, and, and things of that nature. It's a lot of fun. Um, if you're interested in game theory, highly recommend you read up on it. It's a very fascinating field. Why is Patreon struggling? Because Patreon launched a lawsuit against uh, the Bears, against Owen Benjamin and his Bears. Uh, what's happening there? Well, Patreon is losing very badly. I mean, really badly. 
um, they're contradicting their own terms of service. They're constantly updating their terms of service in order to cover their butts, but it's not working because they're losing in court. Now they're being forced, the last time I checked, my information is probably out of date, but the last time I checked, um, they're, they're going to have to go back into arbitration courts in, and, and deal with the individual arbitrations. Why is it that Uber had to settle some ungodly sum of money with like 12,000 drivers globally who launched arbitrations against it? Because it tried to pretend, on the one hand, that the drivers weren't employees, and on the other hand, that they were employees. It's bullshit, but Uber really messed up very, very badly. And they had to settle with a very, very huge group of drivers. This is how you win against the left, the modern left. You present them with too many targets to hit all at once. And you start acting like the right always should have. You start pushing back. You start looking at incentives and payoffs. Stop being afraid and start acting rationally. Start acting as though you can win. Once you start doing this, you will start winning the games. This is the core lesson of game theory when applied to the modern left. The left has a strategy. It has multiple strategies, actually. It has incentives. It has power. It has won every single game up until this point, well, almost every single game, up until this point, because the right refuses to act according to its optimal strategy set. We are too obsessed with being, quote-unquote, honorable. There is a way to be honorable, but you can be ruthless and honorable at the same time. If you want to understand the difference between being stupidly honorable and being ruthlessly honorable, look at Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan was notorious for raising cities and you know stacking up piles and pyramids of skull. He wiped out the entire Khwarezmian Empire doing exactly that. But actually, a lot of cities that surrendered to Genghis Khan didn't suffer at all. He wasn't interested in pillaging them. The moment you act in accordance with the laws of war, in accordance with honorable norms of combat, the right leaves you alone. But the moment you prove that you cannot be trusted, enact a grim trigger strategy and start reaping skulls. That's exactly how you win. That's what you have to do. That's how you fight back. It's all about game theory in the end. And you need to learn about this stuff and you need to start putting it into practice. When it comes to SJWs in your organization, crush them ruthlessly. Throw them out of your organization. Get rid of them as soon as possible. When it comes to leftists in your immediate circle or your family, well, sorry, you're going to have to make some choices. When it comes to people in positions of power, in political power, well, you're going to have to make it clear to them that the price of enacting the left's strategy will be extraordinarily high. The moment you make the price too high, the left will back off. And that's the reality of game theory. That's how it works. I hope I've given you uh, some interesting things to think about uh, in the process of all that ranting. Um, for me, this is a fascinating field. I, I am a big fan of, uh, of, of game theory and its explanatory power. But uh, check out the, the links that I provide in the description box and uh, make sure that you sign up for some of the services that I've mentioned. Make sure you build your own platforms. 
and make sure that you pay attention to these lessons about game theory and all that it entails. Uh, we are about out of time, so I'll wrap it up here. This has been Didactic Mind, Episode 76, War Games, and I am Didact, signing off.